This morning we're going to continue our flyover of the final 13 chapters of the book of Ezekiel. Now, as you will recall from last week, Ezekiel was the prophet who was ministering to the exiles in Babylon by the river Kabar. He had been the messenger from God with tidings of judgment and woe because of the people's continued rebellion and idolatry. And that judgment against Judah was completed with the exile and with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And at that time, God began to reveal to the children of Israel through his prophets, specifically Ezekiel and Jeremiah, news of future comfort. Things wouldn't always be as they were at that time. And Ezekiel began to proclaim the news of this comfort from God, which included a promised salvation, a promised deliverance, and a promised kingdom. Last week, we considered the promised salvation as it was laid out in chapters 36 and 37 that showed there was to be an individual salvation for the people of Israel, but that also something that was unique. There was to be a corporate or a national salvation, and then the future but permanent reunification of the northern and southern kingdoms. Those kingdoms that have been separated for several hundred years were going to be that they would have one king and one shepherd forever. Now, one might be tempted to think that with the promise of salvation on a grand scale as it was for Israel, that things were going to be much better for them, that it was going to be a time of peace and joy and bliss and happiness. If you're a follower of Christ, though, you know that that is hardly ever the case. As Corey prayed, Jesus was hated without a cause, and because Jesus was hated without a cause, his followers are also going to be treated in the same fashion. And one of the marks of a true believer is perseverance. Perseverance is one of those words that, by definition, assumes trouble and difficulty. It's the steadfast endurance of suffering on behalf of the name of Christ. Each one of the letters to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 ends with a promise to the one who overcomes. That is, to the one who does not faint or falter under persecution or opposition. And it will be such with the people of Israel who have been supernaturally redeemed on a national scale. Israel has been no stranger to persecution over the years. Now, sometimes that persecution has been brought by God, and it was brought by God as a means of correction, that, they, that it would cause them to turn away from their stiff-neckedness and their obstinance and their rebellion. But it hasn't always come from God. There have been a number of times where that persecution has been brought by Satan because he hates God, and he hates God's people. They're going to face in the future great opposition and persecution from Satan himself and from his minions through unredeemed men. The title of this morning's message is Israel, the Promised Deliverance, 
And we're going to see in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 how that is delivered. God saved the souls of his people, Israel, and he delivered them from the penalty of sin. Now he's going to deliver them and to rescue them from threatened annihilation. Ezekiel, as he looked into the distant future, saw a single epic battle between God and the forces of unregenerate men. In the passage that was read this morning out of Revelation 19 and 20, God details that there are going to be two such battles. There's going to be one that is prior to the millennial kingdom. That's the battle of Armageddon. And there's going to be one at the conclusion of the millennial kingdom. After Satan's been locked up in the abyss for a thousand years, and the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. The only people who are going to survive the great tribulation are those who are redeemed. They're going to be the ones who go into the millennial kingdom without having tasted death. Now, those believers are going to be joined by the raptured church and by the Old Testament saints and by the tribulation saints. And they're all going to live together on the earth with Christ reigning for a thousand years. During that time, there are going to be kids born to those who survived the Great Tribulation over that thousand year period. You and I are going to have resurrected bodies. We're not going to be given in marriage as we are now and today. And so we're not going to be involved in that part of the kingdom any longer. But there's going to be a whole bunch of kids born. And out of those, there are going to be a number who will not come to saving faith. And at the end of the thousand years, Satan's going to be released from the abyss, and he's going to deceive the nations once again, and there's going to be another huge battle in which all of the unregenerate are gathered by him to come and threaten Jerusalem, at which time God is going to rain fire down from heaven and kill them all, at which time those unbelieving dead are going to go to the great white throne of judgment and Satan's heading off to the lake of fire where he will be joined by those who are condemned at the great white throne. Then God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. So we've gone over that timetable a little bit there so that as we're looking at how these battles lay out, hopefully it will make a little more sense and we're going to see what Ezekiel is seeing in the future. So today, we are going to look at this promised deliverance under three headings. Number one, who are the adversaries? Number two, what are their intentions? And number three, what are the results of these two battles? So, would you open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 38. Let's pray. Father, today we're going to look at a passage, a part of your word that is not often preached. And so I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the word of truth, that I would cut it straight, that we would hear these words as your words. They're not mine. And Lord, that we would know you aright, that we may obey you as we ought. 
Help us to see you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So who are the adversaries? Chapter 38, let's read verses 1 to 6. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarmah from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. So first of all, we notice that we see a lot of names that we do not normally see. We are not accustomed to hearing of countries referred to by these names. We need to realize that these names are going all the way back to Genesis. And so this is one of the messages where we are literally going to go cover to cover in God's word. We read from Revelation 19 and 20. Now we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 10. So keep your finger in Ezekiel, but flip in your Bible back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis chapter 10. Gog is a title. Gog is not a name of a man. It's a title. Now we know that because their Gog is going to arise twice, separated by a thousand years. So it's not the same guy. First Gog is going to get wasted in the first battle. The second Gog is going to get wasted in the second battle. And so Gog is a title. And we should look right now, let's just deal with Rosh up front. Rosh is actually a common Hebrew word. It's used over 600 times in the Old Testament, and the only time it is translated as a proper noun is in the book of Ezekiel, which means it would be better translated by its common translation, which means chief or head or top. And so when God is speaking here, he's talking about Gog, who is the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now let's start in Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. Now you remember that when the flood occurred, there was an ark, and Noah and Mrs. Noah, and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives were the eight people who were on that ark and survived the flood. And so every one of us comes from either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Every single one in here. And so the reason Genesis 10 is called the Table of Nations is that because after these kids were born to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then they began having kids, after the Tower of Babel, these people were dispersed. And out of these different families, nations arose. And so keep that in mind here as we're looking. Verse 2, 
The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Teras. Recognize any names there? Some of these are the names that we were reading in Ezekiel. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish, Katim and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Now let's stop and look at some of these names and get an idea as to where these people went. Japheth tended to go north from Mount Ararat. Mount Ararat is in almost central Turkey. It's about 750 miles north of Jerusalem. So that is ground zero. That's where the ark comes to rest after the flood. And so Japheth and his clan tended to move to the north. So they're going to go up into Asia and Europe. Now, how do we know that? Let's look at Javan, one of Japheth's sons. From the book of Daniel, we know that Javan is Greece. So in Daniel, when it talks about Greece is coming, it's actually Javan is coming. When it was talking about Alexander, the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And so Javan is up in Greece. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Togarmah. Ashkenaz is up in Eastern Europe. So for instance, if you um, refer to uh, Sephardic Jews, those were Jews who came from the region of Spain uh, during, the, during the centuries after Christ, after they've been dispersed. Ashkenazi Jews come from Eastern Europe. That's going to be Poland. That's going to be Czechoslovakia, uh, that region. So up into Eastern Europe. Tarshish, we should recognize that name, right? Jonah, when he was commanded to go take the gospel to Nineveh, which is north and east from Israel, Jonah says, no way, no how, and so Jonah went west. Tarshish is believed to be in the area of Spain. So he was basically trying to go as far as he could from where God would have him to go. One of the other sons here of Javan is Katim. Katim is the island of Cyprus. And so again, all of these places are up to the north of Turkey in Asia and in Europe. Now go back to Genesis 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. Now Canaan we recognize pretty simply, right? Because Canaan is the area of Israel. That was the promised land that where God evicted those nations that had occupied Canaan and gave it to the children of Israel. Cush is Ethiopia. Mizraim is Egypt. Put is Libya. And so the sons of Ham came basically to the south and to the west. And so that's going to be the area of Israel and the area of North Africa. That is going to be the area of Ham. 
And then you see also you get the sons of Ra'amah, also in the line of Ham, were Shabah and Dedan. Shabah also being in Africa, remember the queen of, of Shabah, Sheba. And then the sons of Shem basically went uh, in that area and to the east. And so when you get over into the area of where Babylon would be, that would be the area of Shem. Ham also extended up into there somewhere because one of his uh, descendants was Nimrod. And Nimrod was the one who went up and he settled Assyria and Arabia and that area. So when you look in the Old Testament, that's basically the extent of the known world for the Old Testament. When you hear them speak, anything of the nations in there, you're, you're speaking of Asia Minor, perhaps some into Southern Europe and North Africa. So these countries that are being referred to here are extensions out and that constitutes the known world. So when we look here and we see that God, uh, or that these people are raising up an army and they are including from the sons of Shem and they are including over here from the sons of Ham, that would be the Old Testament equivalent of a global army. Does that make sense? And so when, when we're looking at those nations, um, it's, that's incorporating the known world. And when we look at this army back in Ezekiel, this army is well outfitted, they're well provisioned, the horses and the riders are splendidly outfitted, they're well armed, they have shields and bucklers. I had to look up what a buckler was. A shield, that's the big thing that you can hide behind. So when you've got someone shooting arrows at you, the shield is what you hide behind to stay away from the arrows. The buckler was a small shield that would fit on your arm and that's for hand, that's for close combat. That's for hand-to-hand -hand fighting. And they've got both. And they're outfitted for offense. They've got javelins, they've got bows and arrows, they've got swords, you see that down in chapter 39, verse nine. And there are lots of them. They're numerous. When, it, when they come up against Israel, they are coming up as a cloud. They're coming up as, uh, it's, it, when you look at them moving, it's like watching ants coming out of an anthill. They're everywhere. And it's not just soldiers. Look down at, uh, further in chapter 38, look at verse 9. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. So not only is it an army, they've got an entourage as well. And so basically, it's the world against Israel. And it's the world against Israel and God. Israel's alone as far as nations are concerned. They're not alone as far as God is concerned. And so here you have these nations being raised up from all around the world as it was known as it, at Ezekiel's time. So what are their intentions? Verse seven, be prepared 
and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. The idea here of being, be prepared and prepare yourself, this is the idea that these, these nations are coming with their own agenda, and yet we're going to see that they are also being compelled by God to fulfill God's agenda through them. And so part of this is active. They're doing it themselves. Part of it is passive. This is being done to them. And they're both working in concert with no conflict between them. Now that's the same as it is for us. We have our, we have our plans, right? A man plans his ways, the Lord directs his steps. I have things that I want to accomplish, and yet God also has his agenda. His is going to hold Trump, by the way. And so God is not working against our will. He's not working against the will of those who are unregenerate. He is able to, both of them. So people, when they choose to rebel against God, it's their choice. God is also sovereign over that. And so they're not in competition. Verse 10, thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Shaba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? The idea here of Shabbat, Dedan, and Tarshish, those guys are like the fences of the Old Testament. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that word. When you have somebody who's a professional thief, and he goes and he acquires property, be it artwork, be it jewelry, be it whatever, those things are often things that you can't just sell. And so you take it to somebody who specializes in handling stolen property. The jargon for that is he's called a fence. Why? Beats me. That's just the way it is. So these guys, Shabbat, Dedan, and Tarshish, when you look in Ezekiel chapter 28, you'll find that they are also involved in the length of commerce, and they specialize in handling stuff that's basically been plundered from somebody else, and being able to take that and distribute it in order to get money. And so what are the intentions here of these armies? It's basically to go into a place that is not defended well, and because it's not defended well, they figure it's easy pickings. 
They're not going to have to work real hard. It's going to be easy for them to conquer this people. And if they put up a fight, it'll be easy for them to kill them and simply take what they have. And so basically, they're going to be the bully on the block. Now, we talked earlier about how Ezekiel sees one fight. And in Revelation, we see that there are two battles. And these battles are separated by this thousand-year period called the Millennial Kingdom, where Christ is personally reigning on the earth. Satan is locked up in the abyss. He cannot deceive the nations. And so we're going to find, we're going to talk about this more next week, um, we're going to see that during the Millennial Kingdom, sin is not as rampant. People live for long periods of time. If you die at 100, it'll be considered you died young. And so we're, you have the lion laying down with the lamb. All of those things are referring to that period of time. During that period of time, you have no need for national defense. You don't need to have a standing army. You don't need to have gates and bars and walls around your cities because there's no one coming to give you grief. There's no one coming to assault you or to assail you. And so there's no reason for any of that. And so part of this with Gog and Magog, they're looking at the time when we don't have those issues. So when Satan's released and he comes out to deceive the nations again, all of a sudden these guys look and they go, wow, we can go over to this people and rip them off because they won't be able to stop us. That's the idea. Now, prior to the millennial kingdom, it can be like that a little bit. And the reason for that is, is that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, Israel has got a peace treaty with the Antichrist. And so, and I realize if you haven't been in our Sunday school class that's studying the book of Revelation, some of this is going to be, that may sound like it's Greek to you. And that's okay. Get the, the messages from Revelation and you can catch up. And so the idea here is that during that first three and a half years, Israel's at peace largely with everybody. Nobody's after him anymore because they have this peace treaty signed. Now that's going to change halfway through the tribulation. The Antichrist is going to break that agreement and uh, it's all of a sudden going to be persecution for the Jews. Two-thirds of the Jews are going to die during the time of the tribulation in that seven-year period. One-third is going to survive and they're going to be redeemed. And there's going to be a bunch of those that died that will be redeemed as well. So here again, they're coming in and their intent is basically to take everything that Israel has got. So they're devising an evil plan. But did you see that God is also devising for them to do this because he is going to accomplish his purpose in them? Go back to verse 3. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog. Verse 4. I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws. Now that's a pretty descriptive comment, isn't it? That was something that was done in 
olden times when you had prisoners. Uh, you can see this you know, when, in talking about the way Assyria led people into captivity, Babylon as well. They would take a hook and they would put it through the septum, that thing here that divides the two sides of your nose. They would put a hook through that and have it attached to a chain because where your nose goes, the rest of you follows. And they figured that out. And so putting the, no, the, the, the hook through the nose, that's one way of doing it. God says, I'm not going to be quite so subtle. I'm going to put my hook in your jaw. Now, you see what happens with a horse with a bit in its mouth? Can you imagine what that horse would do if you put a hook on both sides of its jaw? You would have no problem getting the horse to go where you want it to go. It's just very unkind and cruel now, isn't it? And yet that's exactly how God is portraying this for his enemies. I'm going to put my hook in your jaw and I'm going to bring you out. So again, they have an evil plan. They have an evil desire. And at the same time, God is accomplishing his purpose. He's drawing them out because he's going to be glorified through them. Look down at verse 16 in chapter 38. And you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O Gog. And so when he brings judgment on Gog because of his rebellion, because of his attack against his people, Israel, everybody else is going to see and they're going to know that God is the one who is doing it. Look down at chapter 39, verse 2. And I will turn you around, drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And so again, everywhere where they are, they're going to have representatives in this army that is coming against God and against God's people. And when again is this going to happen? It's going to be in the latter years. Now, one of the things that was characteristic of these messages to God's prophets during this time is that this was shown as being, this is a long time off. For instance, when you look in the book of Daniel and you get to Daniel chapter 12, you find that God tells Daniel, seal up the words of this prophecy because this is a long way out in the future. You don't need to be worrying about this happening next week. This is for a long time down the road. He does the same thing basically here with Ezekiel. He tells Ezekiel, look, this is for latter times. He doesn't define what that is, but you can get an idea since Ezekiel is ministering in the time period of 560, 570 BC. And now we, here we are in 2022. So here we are pushing 2,600 years later, and these things have still not occurred. Third, what are the results? Well, as a general rule of thumb, it generally doesn't go well for you when you rebel against God and when you go against him. Historically, that's been true, hasn't it? The sons of Korah, rebelled against God's work through Moses and Aaron, and they died in a very new, outstanding way, right? The earth opened up and swallowed up 250 people, the followers of Korah and their families. 
it doesn't pay to stand against God and rebel against him. So again, we have two battles. So let's look at the battle of Armageddon first, since that's the one that's going to happen first in time. First of all, God's fury is aroused. Look at verse 18 of chapter 38. It will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. In my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. Look down at chapter 39, verse 3. I will strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and all the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. Go down now to verse 23. No, not 23. Chapter 39, verse 17. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, Assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. Now, where have you heard language like that today? That is very close to what John wrote in the book of Revelation, pursuant to the battle of Armageddon. So keep your finger in Ezekiel and let's go to the right all the way to the end to uh, Revelation chapter 19. We have the description of the Lord Jesus Christ sitting on the white horse. He's called faithful and true. He judges righteously. Many diadems on his head. 
A diadem was the crown that was worn by royalty. It, 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 was, it was a demonstration of royal authority. Kings have one. Christ has many. He's wearing a robe dipped in blood. The armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth, the Lord Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Go down to verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. John is almost quoting from Ezekiel. And so that's how we can know that part of what Ezekiel is seeing is related to the Battle of Armageddon prior to the Millennial Kingdom. Also, those that are killed at, in Ezekiel's vision, some are killed with the sword. That is at the time of the Battle of Armageddon because they are killed by the sword coming out of the mouth of the Lamb. Those that are killed after the millennial kingdom, that's fire coming down from heaven, fire and brimstone. We'll see that here in a couple of moments. And so these are going to be killed and they're going to be scavenged by the beasts of the earth and their bones are going to be picked clean by the birds of the air. And then there's going to be a massive burial party, which basically is the entire house of Israel. Let's look at chapter 39. We'll start at verse 11 for that. On that day, I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by. There are so many bodies you can't get through. So they will bury Gog there with all his horde. And they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. That means the multitude of Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be, will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them. And it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. And even the name of the city will be Hamanah, multitude. So they will cleanse the land. So you're going to have bones covering the face of the earth in this valley to the point where people cannot even pass by. 
Now remember last week when we were looking in chapter 37 and you had the valley of the dry bones? One of the ways that you disrespected the dead was you left them exposed. You didn't bury them. Now these people are ultimately going to be buried, but only after everybody's been able to pick their bones clean. And so the very thing that God raised Israel up from, you know, when the ankle bone connected to the shin bone, the shin bone to the knee bone, the knee bone to the hip bone, when God did that with Israel, he's doing the exact opposite with his enemies. They're starting off whole, and they're ending up as bones. And ultimately, those bones are going to be buried so that the land can be cleansed. The Valley of Hamangog is going to turn into the largest cemetery on the planet. If you go to the city of Colma, um, there's not enough land in San Francisco. So if you die in San Francisco, you are not buried in San Francisco. You get buried in Colma. The, the population of Colma, if I remember correctly, is about 12,000 people living. There's about one and a half million people buried in Colma. I'm not kidding. The town motto is, it's good to be alive in Colma. <laughs> that is true. I investigated a fire in a crematorium in Colma. We can talk about that at the potluck. That's real good potluck conversation. <laughs> this is going to be a huge cemetery because there's going to be people buried everywhere. Seven months, every person in a whole nation working on simply burying these bones. And that's not the only result. Look back in chapter 39, and we'll start in verse 9. Then those who inhabit, this is after they're dead. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will make fires of them. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forests, for they will make fires with the weapons. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. Now remember, these people don't have electricity. They don't have natural gas or propane. So they can't cook with any of those things that we get to cook with. They're cooking over wood. For seven years, they don't have to cut firewood. They're simply going to be chopping up the weapons of those who came to assail them. Now think about that for a moment. A whole country cutting up bows, cutting up spears, cutting up arrows, and having that to cook their food over, to heat their home with for seven years. And so again, the army is massive that is coming, and yet God is going to kill them all. And Israel's going to be fastidious about it too. Note that as they're going through, 
They're searching, and if anybody finds a bone, they put a marker on it so you can have a designated squad come over and make sure that it gets buried properly. And so Israel is going to be restored to their land, and God's name is going to be renowned among the Jews and the Gentiles. Look over at chapter 39, verse 21. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed in my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hands of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they, perpetuate, which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Remember last week when we talked about their individual and their national salvation. God poured his spirit out on them. And again, now they're being brought back, they're being made whole in their country, and God's name is renowned among everybody because everybody knows that it's he who did it. Now there's also some here for the second battle. Go back to chapter 38, verse 22. In verse 21, we saw that every man's sword will be against his brother. In verse 22, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. If you were to look back in chapter 19 in Revelation, we won't go there. If you were to go back there, how does God end the rebellion that Satan leads after the, the millennial kingdom? He rains down fire from heaven. And we also know from Revelation 19 that when you see Satan coming out to deceive the nations again, we see Gog and Magog mentioned by name. That's Revelation 20, verse 8. Gog and Magog to gather them together for the war. And so Ezekiel is seeing both. It's also, if you look down in chapter 39, verse 6, I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. So that fire from heaven is not just coming on the army. It's coming down on the countries that sent them as well. God is going to bring judgment on all of his enemies. 
That is a sobering passage of scripture. Especially if you're one who is not redeemed. God's plan is moving ahead on his timetable. He's sovereign over all the affairs of men, even over their plans and schemes. God was sovereign over the intentions of men when they scorned Jesus, when they mocked him, when they tortured him, when they crucified him. Jesus could have called down legions of angels, any one of which would have been able to deal with every unregenerate man in Jerusalem on that day. And yet he didn't. Jesus came to live and to die in your place and mine as the atonement for our sin to satisfy the wrath of God that was rightly due to you and to me. And while we look forward to the day when Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron in his millennial kingdom, today we remember him as the lamb which was slain, who purchased men for God from every tribe, every people, every tongue, and every nation. Our Father, we are so grateful. We are grateful to you that you devised a plan of salvation that you executed it, you put all the pieces into play, you accomplished all of that, and you accomplished it on your own because there wasn't anybody else who could. And we are grateful that you have extended that salvation to us. That new covenant was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and yet you have extended it to we Gentiles. And we are grateful. Oh God, help us to demonstrate our gratitude to you by devotion and by obedience, that people would be able to know that we are yours because we act like you, we speak like you. There's a strong family resemblance. Oh, Father, may our hearts be overwhelmed with gratitude for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.